The second reading this morning is uh, Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. The text of our uh, scripture readings uh, are present um, uh, in your bulletins. Hear the word of God. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this Sabbath day and we thank you um, for your instruction to set it aside for worship of you. We thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place. We thank you for the freshness of the air. Lord, we pray um, that you would be present in our midst Uh, This morning, we pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us and equip us this morning for the work that you have called us to. Lord, all of us are coming from complicated weeks. We've had a lot of trouble these past seven days, and we just pray this morning that uh, you would receive our thanks uh, for carrying us through uh, the things that we've been through this past week. We ask that you would allow us in this moment to uh, focus on you as the source of our life and our strength, and we pray that we would be uh, rejuvenated in this hour. We do pray for the week ahead, and we ask that you would um, send us into that week uh, renewed and rejoicing, ready for what it is that you have for us. We pray for those of our number who are unable to be present with us this morning. We pray that the fellowship of the Spirit would be genuine. We pray that you would continue to uh, keep us strongly bound with one another. We thank you for the blessings of the Internet, which allow us to communicate with one another during this pandemic. Lord, we pray for the lifting of this uh, time of trouble. We pray uh, for a changed circumstance in our land and in the world. We pray that you would keep us safe. We pray that you would teach us how to live in the midst uh, of these circumstances. We pray that you you would fill us with joy. Father God, as we come to your word this uh, morning, we ask that you would send us your Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds, uh, the same spirit that um, inspired uh, the words of Scripture. We pray that uh, your truth would... Uh, come to us this day and that it would convict us and that it would settle into our lives and that it would change who we are. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It has always been 
uh, God's plan uh, that the influence of the Word of God and that the influence of the Church of God would extend to the ends of the earth. I'm glad that Sherry was able to speak this morning about the EPC's uh, foreign mission program. It's a, it's a very interesting strategy that they have. Uh, they only go to people groups that have uh, no d- domestic local church. Um, to the ends of the earth is what the church has always been called to. Since day one, the church has always been a global movement. Since day one, the church has never been content to sit comfortably inside of its own doors or to sequester itself in its own cozy neighborhoods. The church has never said, oh, you know, we don't need to travel to that valley because they already have a God over there. The church has never said, oh, we don't need to sail to that island because we have plenty of Christians already. It has always been in God's vision that the Word of God and that the church of God would fill the earth. And we see that already in God's promise to Abraham after Abraham had offered to sacrifice his son. God says to him, Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sands that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemy and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That's Genesis 22, verse 16. Now, if you think about it for just a minute, this promise that all nations of the earth would be blessed because of Abraham, this promise should strike you as a curious thing for the Jewish scriptures to record because Judaism makes such a strong distinction between the Jews and the nations of the earth between the Jews and everyone else, and yet rooted deeply in the promise to Abraham is the promise that God's blessing of Abraham will not just be for the descendants of Abraham, not just for the Jews, but that it will overflow into the whole world and to the glory of God, to the glory of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The prophet Isaiah tells us that even the pagans are going to say, Come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us pagans, and that we may walk in his paths. Even the pagans will realize that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knows the right way to live and the ways that mm, produce a blessed life. Now, maybe you hear this promise that God makes to Abraham that in your offspring all nations of the earth shall be blessed. You hear the prophecy of Isaiah that the pagan nations will come to the Jews to look for wisdom and good counsel. You hear those things and you think to yourself, well, of course. Of course the Jews are a blessing to the whole world. Of course the pagans will come to the Jews for wisdom and counsel. Think of all of the geniuses down through history who have been Jewish. 
All of the creative people, musicians, artists, writers, think of all of the Jewish scientists and business people and humanitarians and philanthropists. Of course, the Jews are a blessing to the whole world. Israel is this tiny little little nation, but its influence on public good and global culture have been enormous. And so we thank God for the Jews and for their contributions to Western culture. But if we think that's what God's promise to Abraham meant, if we think that's what the prophecy of Isaiah meant, then we're actually mistaken. Something bigger is going on here than having a bunch of Jewish scientists and businessmen. Something supernatural is going on here. Here's how the Apostle Paul explains God's promise to Abraham. This is in Galatians 3.16. Paul writes, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, and here's the important part, who is Christ. It's a rather subtle point that Paul is making here. God promises to bless all nations through the offspring, singular, not plural, through the offspring of Abraham. This is a promise to bless all the nations through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And there's only one of him. Jesus is the Jewish blessing for the world. And if Jesus is God's blessing through Abraham to the entire world, then we have to ask ourselves, how is it that this blessing is going to be distributed to the world? How do the blessings that are in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, begin to spread out from Zion to all the other nations? Here's what Jesus says to his disciples. This is Matthew chapter 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the Great Commission, of course. The Great Commission is the way, the manner, the means that the blessing of Abraham, which is in Jesus, is distributed to the world. Jesus is the blessing, the blessing that's been promised in Abraham, and the great commission is the distribution method of that blessing. So what's the most important word in the great commission? It rhymes with Joe and blow. It's go. Go. It's the most important word. That's the verb. That's the active verb in the Great Commission. Go, leave where you are, leave the comfort of your home, leave the security of your neighborhood, leave the ease of your pew, and go. Go to people who have not heard the good news yet. Go to the hard places. That's what... God calls for us to do so that His blessing might be distributed among all people by telling His chosen people to go, to go into the world and tell the world about Jesus. Now think for a moment 
way back to Genesis chapter 12, where we read the account of God first meeting Abram. Abram is living with his people in the Ur of the Chaldees, which is about 900 miles to the east of Jerusalem. And one day, out of the blue, God shows up. Here's what we read in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So did you catch the very first word that God speaks to Abram? Abram, the man in whom all of the families of the earth will be blessed. The very first word that God speaks to Abram is go. Go from your country. Go from your family. Go from the property that you stand to inherit. Go in order that the families of all the earth will be able to be blessed. If we are not going, then we're not blessing. If we're only gathering... And gathering is important, but if we are only gathering, then we are not blessing anyone. Way back in January, when we were just beginning this sermon series in the Acts of the Apostles, we heard Jesus explain how the Great Commission is going to be lived out. Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It has always been God's plan that the influence of the Word of God and that the influence of the Church of God be extended to the end of the earth. God has never been content that only a few should know Him as Father. God has never only wanted a few people to enjoy His blessings. The followers of Jesus will receive power from the Holy Spirit, and when they do, they will begin to witness to Christ. Not only in their hometown there in Jerusalem, but then also in the surrounding county and in the neighboring county. And then eventually to the end of the earth. And they're going to do that by going. They will go because Christ sends them. Jesus says in John twenty twenty one, as the Father sent me, so send I you. As the Father sent me, so send I you. And why does he do that? Why does God send his people out into the wide world? Well, I suppose it's because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God has a blessing in mind for the world. That blessing is Jesus and the witness to Jesus is entrusted to the disciples. The disciples receive that blessing, but if they don't go and bear witness to Jesus, if they don't tell other people about Jesus, then that blessing fails to spread and God's purposes in the world are thwarted. Paul describes the knowledge of Jesus as a treasure held in a clay jar. Imagine a bar of gold hidden in a simple 
piece of pottery. That's what the knowledge of Jesus is like in us. We're just humble clay jars, but hidden inside of us is something of tremendous value, knowledge about Jesus. We personally don't look like much, but what we know of the gospel is tremendously valuable. And it's the power of salvation for all who believe. Here's what Paul writes. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus the Christ with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We have this treasure hidden inside of us, but God sends us out to spread and distribute that treasure to other people. It's not for us alone. It's actually for the whole world. The Apostle Peter explaining why Jesus has not yet returned to establish his kingdom on earth, he writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Lord tarries, the Lord waits, because some sheep still need to be rounded up and brought into the fold. God sends us into the world to round up those sheep because he loves those sheep. The church has always been about going, going out. The church has never been an exclusive club tucked away in a corner. The church has always been pressing out into the world. People who say that the church shouldn't evangelize or proselytize simply don't understand what a church is. A church that doesn't evangelize makes no more sense than a baseball team that doesn't swing a bat. Going and telling other people about Jesus, inviting them into the fold of the church. That's just the nature of the church. Going and inviting has always been part of God's plan for the world and for us as his church. And if a congregation stops going and inviting, it actually ceases to be a church. To be a going concern, the church must always be going. What God says to Abram is go. What Jesus says to the apostles is go. And so after sending the Holy Spirit, which lights that fire in Jerusalem, God sends the winds of persecution, which causes those flames to spread throughout the rest of the world. Here's what we read in Acts chapter 8. There arose on that day... A great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And those who were scattered went about preaching the word. If Stephen had not been martyred, if a general persecution of Christians had not begun in Jerusalem, you and I probably would not be Christians today The mystery of God's providence is that God uses even the sinful actions of sinful people to produce a holy purpose. Those who killed 
Stephen were guilty of murder, but through God's providence, Stephen's murder probably saved your eternal soul. So let's talk a little bit about why this persecution arose. I'm guessing all of you have seen the coexist bumper stickers. It's blue, white characters, spelling out just that one word, coexist. Each letter is made from the symbol of a different religion. The C is the crescent of Islam. The O is the peace sign of hippies. The E merges the symbol of male and female for the gender fluid. The X is built on the Jewish Star of David. The I is dotted with a pentagram for the Wiccans. The S has the yin and the yang of Buddhism. And last but not least, the T is the cross of Christ. The message is straightforward. Different religions should live with one another peaceably. We should get along. We should coexist. Now, I don't know, and Scripture doesn't say what kind of car Saul of Tarsus drove, but I am confident that he did not have a coexist bumper sticker on that car. And neither did Stephen. And when Paul meets Stephen, sparks fly. Neither of them say coexist. These two uncompromising religious fanatics, that's what they were, meet, and one of them has to die. Let's remember how we got here. Back in Acts chapter 5, the crazy Christians, drunk on the Holy Spirit, are preaching like madmen in Jerusalem, and the bigwigs in the temple want to put an end to this nonsense, and so they order Peter and the apostles to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, and when the apostles refuse, the temple officials arrest them and bring them into court. The majority want to kill the Christians on the spot, but Gamaliel... A Pharisee who was the teacher of Saul, a a fellow who might have had a coexist bumper sticker on his car, he stands up and he advises a more mm, cautious route. Gamaliel reminds the court that other self-proclaimed messiahs have appeared in the past. Judas the Galilean, some fellow named uh, Theudas. But when these pseudo-messiahs were killed, their followers just dispersed. And so if Jesus were like all the others, then the hubbub will die down now that he's dead. If Jesus, however, were from God, is from God, then it's going to be impossible to oppose him. This is Gamaliel's advice. Now the next time that a Christian is hauled before the Sanhedrin because of their preaching in the name of Jesus, it's Stephen. And what Stephen makes clear in his defense, which we talked about two weeks ago, is that this new message of Jesus is absolutely incompatible with the old religion, with the quid pro quo, I'll do God a favor and he'll bless me in return religion that was being practiced in the temple. There's no way for the two to coexist. They are mutually exclusive. They are mutually hostile. Because God is a jealous God. If one is right, then the other must be wrong. Stephen understood that. And the Sanhedrin understood it too. 
And in their fury, they kill Stephen, even though they don't have the legal authority to do so. They kill him because it's impossible for these two religions to coexist. So what about Saul? Saul, you know, is going to become Paul. He's huge in the story of the early church. He's my personal hero. Here's what Professor F.F. Bruce writes uh, about Saul. Saul, too, realized as clearly as Stephen the fundamental incompatibility between the old order and the new. No compromise was logically possible. And if the old order was to be preserved, then the new faith must be stamped out. And so there was Saul stoning Stephen. He was witness to the outrage. He watched the men's cloak as they murdered Stephen. And after the death of Stephen, we read, Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul is the Heinrich Himmler of the first persecution of Christians. Saul was the prime agent in the Jewish attempt to exterminate the church. We don't know how many died. But what we do know is that this first persecution drove the church out of Jerusalem into the wider world. At the time... The persecution started. Jerusalem was a bustling international city. Many ethnic Jews from all parts of the world were there speaking local languages, speaking Greek as their common language. These people were part of the church. You'll recall that the cause of the creation of the office of deacon, of which Stephen was one of the first seven, was this conflict between the Greek-speaking Christians and the Hebrew-speaking Christians. In the persecution, it is the Greek-speaking Christians who scatter while the Hebrew-speaking Christians remain in the city gathered around the twelve apostles. If the day of Pentecost is the birthday of the church, then the beginning of the great persecution after the death of Stephen was the day that the church left home and struck out on its own. It was the day when the baby bird was pushed out of the nest and had to fly. And that was the day that the church began to fulfill the Great Commission. God's command to go is so imperative that he is willing to send even a gruesome persecution to make it happen. Human nature would rather stay at home. Human nature would rather remain safe and cozy and comfortable. But God has work that he wants done. He has lost sheep who need to be rounded up. God has blessings that he once distributed. And so the church needs to go. And that brings us to Philip, the first of the post-persecution preachers we hear about going into the world is Philip. Here's what we read in Acts chapter 8. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they saw him. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. 
Now, the rest of chapter 8 will be devoted to the evangelistic work of Philip, so we'll have more time to talk about him in the weeks ahead. But this morning, I I just want to clear up the identity of this man, because there's sometimes some confusion about Philip. There was an apostle named Philip. He was from Bethsaida, a friend of Andrew and Peter, but that's not this Philip. The Philip the Apostle remains in Jerusalem with the other 11 apostles. This Philip, often called Philip the Evangelist, is part of the first uh, group of deacons. He was a fellow deacon with Stephen. We read about him back in Acts chapter 6. Like Stephen, Philip is not an apostle, but he is a, a preacher of the gospel. And he preaches with power. And he heals people in the name of Jesus. He leaves Jerusalem because of the killing of Stephen and the persecution that has broken out. And he goes into Samaria where the Bible tells us that there was great joy because of his arrival. We're going to learn more about that next Sunday. As Christians were called to go. Well, going is never easy. Obeying God's command to go will bring a certain amount of discomfort and pain and cost. That's just the truth. But if we don't leave, if we don't leave our Jerusalem, if we don't go, there will be no joy in Samaria. There will be no blessing for those people. That's why God is sending us to spread this blessing and this joy When we go, however, we get to participate in that joy. A joy we would never know if we just remained safely at home. Now the truth is, a lot of us are chickens about talking about or acting in the name of Jesus. But those who have gone are always glad that they've done it. And so may we, as a church, go. Let us pray. Father God, we love you and we adore you and we thank you that you are a God who loves this world and that you have sheep uh, that are waiting to be rounded up. Lord, we pray that you be patient with us and we be patient with those sheep that are waiting to be found. We pray that we would be going out uh, from our circles of comfort, that we would be uh, sharing the gospel with other people. Father God, I just pray that uh, we would recognize that we are your chosen people, that we've been anointed in a special way to do um, what no one else can do, to proclaim the gospel uh, to a lost and hurting world. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would drive us uh, from our places of ease and send us into uh, the fields uh, that you would have us uh, harvest. We do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.